I'm Jason Solomons and you're listening to the April edition of Sounds Jewish. In this month's podcast, as Bibi Netanyahu starts his new administration, what kind of prime minister will this ex-prime minister make? And what will be the reaction to allegations of war crimes by the Israeli military in Gaza? Jews and heavy metal, we're going to rock and bridge roll. The metal from the shtetl is the subject of our feature. And the season of mozza and macaroons is fast approaching. We'll hear five ways to survive the family seder with legendary agony aunt Irma Kurtz. Salam, shalom. Joining me in the pod this month is Haggai Seagal, the award-winning lecturer at NYU in London, the scholar-in-residence at the London Jewish Cultural Centre and a maven for the Middle East, commentating on CNN and the BBC. Oi, your mum must be so proud of you. Welcome to your first time here at Sounds Jewish. Pleasure to be here. And joining Haggai is journalist and commentator, Sounds Jewish regular Daniela Pellet. Welcome again. Lovely to see you. Nice to be here. We're going to talk about Israel uh, to start with. Uh, we always uh, like to kind of focus in on what's been going on there on Sounds Jewish. Uh, after a while. Daniel, have you been there recently? You're always sort of off there. I, I presume you've come back and, and uh, what's the mood like there? People are still talking about the war. People are discussing what the political fallout is and people are getting ready for the Eurovision. Right, you see. They, the usual they, mix. A lot, and Passover, no doubt, as well. Haggai, do you go there regularly? I do. Not been there for a few months, but off uh, in a month's time. And uh, it's one of those amazing countries where these things are always dynamic. You know, every bus journey is a, is a kind of political experience, which... Um, it's been always been the case, but I think is even more so than ever. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, go on our little bus journey to start off Sounds Jewish and look at the political situation in Israel at the moment. It took only the best part of two months, but at long last, Israel does have a new government. The horse trading has gone on since those inconclusive elections way back in early February, but the Likud leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, is once again back as Prime Minister, the job he last held ten years ago. Sounds Jewish went out onto the streets of Jerusalem to hear what Israelis think of the second coming of Bibi. I think he'll be as bad as he was the first time around he was prime minister. Except now he might be even worse because he appointed so many ministers that he's going to basically preside over a government that won't be able to do anything except for give a bunch of unqualified guys free cars. Benjamin Netanyahu has the potential to be a good leader for Israel in the current time. His experience in both uh, economic and uh, military affairs might make us say that he is the right person in the right place at the moment. I don't like Netanyahu on many different bases. First of all, I don't like his right-wing views about the territories and about the peace uh, process or or the lack of peace process with the Palestinians. It's unbelievable that Lieberman is going to be the foreign uh, minister. It seems that all the people who promise that they're right-wing end up being much more left-wing when they're in the position because they feel that that's what they have to do. I don't see why he would be any different. We've heard what residents of Jerusalem think of Netanyahu. Most people, I think, thought he'd be leading a narrow right-wing coalition, but now Ehud Barak's Labour Party are on board. Will that make a big difference? It does make a huge difference, and I think while the analysis of many was that it would be a a pretty far-right coalition, the reason why it isn't is because Netanyahu himself was desperate to ensure that it wasn't. I think many assumed that being a a pretty right-wing individual himself, and Likud very much moving to the right in recent years, that he would be interested in such a coalition, but he is very, very cognizant of the implications of having a government without any uh, kind of censure in it, without any kind of moderating factor, but also he's extremely aware of the pressure from America and Europe. 
Europe, etc. Given that this is a podcast and you have to be young to handle the new technology, I assume there'll be quite a few listeners who don't remember 10 years ago. Remind mm. us what sort of Prime Minister Netanyahu was first time round. Well, a very controversial one. Um, there were accusations of sleaze and corruption, only accusations, but... Um, that's hardly unusual these days. You can't uh, be an Israeli prime minister without allegations of sleaze and corruption. I, I think it's actually a requirement a, these days, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. What was interesting was was that when he ended, he was considered to be the worst prime minister, one of the most failed prime ministers. But of course, in the intervening period, he's been joined in that category by quite a few. And if before Olmet had lost the poll to, uh, in, in Kadima to Livni, there had been a, a leadership contest between the three of them for the prime minister, it would have been between the most discredited leader in Israel's history, the most discredited leader in Israel's history, and the most discredited leader in Israel's history, Olmet, Barak, and Netanyahu. Uh, so um, his his reputation has somewhat grown, not necessarily because he's changed, but rather that kind of the standard has fallen the with of, him the in the intervening of three years. Evils. Uh, Daniel, uh, uh, as Haggai outlined there, there's been a, a sort of a right wing shift, uh, not only in Netanyahu himself and Likud himself, but Avigdor Lieberman, an ultra nationalist, has made a lot of headlines coming uh, third in those elections. Do, do, do you think he'll be a big power in this new government? He's certainly a big presence already. I think it'll be a big power. How long he remains in the government is another thing. There are very serious allegations of money laundering and so on against him. The The fact is, if he's charged, then he'll have to resign. That's the precedent. But this could be in a few weeks, it could be in a few months, it could be a few years. Certainly, he's going to be received with caution abroad. I think, you know, no one's going to be able to refuse to meet Israel's foreign Minister, but I don't think uh, Israel's allies are going to be rushing to in- uh, issue invitations anytime soon. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think the line, the former Moldovan um, uh, bouncer, we're going to be seeing in rather a lot of headlines in describing the new foreign minister of the State of Israel. Well, the spectre of war certainly has been hanging over most reports from Israel. But in the last few uh, few weeks, uh, some, some startling allegations have been surfacing in the press, both here and in Israel itself, uh, I think most tellingly this time, about the conduct of the Israeli defence forces in Gaza during Operation Cast Lead. The controversy has centred in particular on the testimony of a group of Israeli soldiers who've spoken candidly about their experiences, admitting to two episodes in which their fellow soldiers have killed civilians who pose no threat, in one case a Palestinian woman and her two children, in another, an elderly woman. Now, there have been a slew of other charges too. Now, these have been very shocking reading uh, for uh, an Anglo Jew here that you, you, we've seen on the headlines, not least in The Guardian, have been uh, really majoring on these stories, but also in Haaretz in Israel as well. Haggai, how serious are these charges? Well, the charges are very serious, um, but as with all these things, we, we, time will tell whether they're substantive or not. What has been interesting has been the response in Israel, which is that since they've come out, we've heard time and time again the army and its leadership saying, we're the most moral army in the world and we're mm. very proud of it. And it's, it's a very interesting window into the Israeli psyche, and that is genuinely, genuinely believed. And the response of many who have been saying that from the leadership of the army is that, as a consequence, they don't actually believe these kind of things have happened. Now, if these things are happening, be they wide-scale or on the occasion, occasional uh, um, moment. And let's be honest, um, this happens in war. And um, we, we all know what's been accused with the British and the Americans mm-hmm. in Iraq, Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib. The list is endless. Um, if, if this has happened on one or two occasions, it sadly is just in the norm with every other military conflict we could we could find in the next 50 years. But what is interesting is, is, is this belief in Israel that it's impossible that these kind of things can happen. And what many, I think, are arguing now is that there is a, maybe a lack of scrutiny 
scrutiny on this, that there is such an assumption at the leadership of the Israeli army that Israel is moral, that it isn't necessarily recognizing that its army uh, over the years, and, and it's inevitable when you spend years and years interacting with a foreign population that is seen as an enemy and in part behaves as an enemy, it is inevitable there's going to be an us and them mentality, an element of dehumanization. I mean, Chagai is quite right. You can't have a war without war crimes. Indeed. You can't have an occupation without atrocities. The issue is how society and how the army deals with this. And I think often with the Israeli army, the feeling that togetherness and esprit de corps is more important than holding soldiers to account. We hear stories now that each division in the army is printing up their own T-shirts. Now, some of these T-shirts have made it into the Western media and are extremely, extremely shocking garments, if you ask me. Very tastelessly done with a pregnant Palestinian woman lined up in the in the sights of a rifle uh, with the, you know, one one shot, two kills, because right? you're killing their child. I mean, these are... I, I saw these, and I, I mean, as a, I felt, as a human being, I felt revulsion. As a Jew, I felt doubly revolted. I mean, this was, I thought, morality sunk extremely low. Uh, are these Are these true? Are these isolated cases? They're not isolated at all. And this isn't a new story. This has been going on for decades in the army. They're not officially issued by, by the army, but traditionally they are, as you might imagine, from 19, 20-year-old boys. They, are, they range from the bad taste to the grotesque and the racist and the sexist. I don't think we should be surprised that soldiers, having gone through a traumatic experience and having, especially with a sniper, has been trained to shoot and kill, come up with this kind of this kind of horrible bonding T-shirts. But there should be some governance from the army. This shouldn't be allowed to happen, you know, in the name of the army, even officially, without... Well, well our, our Prince Harry here gets in trouble for calling his, his little friend in the army a little packy. You know, the world was it was in shock, front page of every newspaper. The, the Britain was a, a racist society riven with the internal conflicts. And what are we to make of Israel with these T-shirts? I think the key point to emphasise here is that the revulsion that you felt is it was felt across Israel, and we've had that reaction some... Uh, dismiss it as well, you know, boys will be boys, mm. etc. But we've had similar reactions here. Well, um, I think I, I'd agree with you entirely, though, that uh, on the point that the army uh, should not be allowing these things to be done as as a, as a standard norm because they, they don't go through the level of scrutiny. Um, but also, you know, I think there's an argument to make that these kind of things are positive in the sense that they, they are a way of actually seeing what may be going on that otherwise you're ignoring. This scandal... Um, the, the images of these T-shirts has now forced this issue to be addressed and forced it to be dealt with. And I think it goes back to the question you raised before about the impact here on the community. Um, the, the, the great discomfort in the reporting of Israel uh, is that these things are used not just to criticise the policy, but of course are used by those who wish to profoundly question Israel's right to exist. And we, we see, of course, a direct parallel with the kind of media uh, all over the world. And suddenly when, when Israel is involved in these kind of conflicts and when it does get messy, be it acceptably messy, inverted commas, or unacceptably messy, immediately it becomes an acceptable time again for the Israel has no right to exist stuff to come into the media. And I think that is where things get very, very difficult. And it is the concentration on these issues and, and the community perception that is not a concentration on the other stuff, which I think so plays into the the uh, the very defensive posture that yeah, our community takes. The debate should be about the issues, not about the reporting of the issues, not about whether it's right or wrong that, that journalists reveal these things, but what is actually going on. And if the people in the diaspora, as they do very often, feel connected to Israel, then they should feel free to be part of that debate. Guns and Roses. Anthrax, Twisted Sister, Kiss and Anvil. No, you haven't tuned in to Kerrang! Radio, but what have these got in common? Apart from 
long hair and tight pants. Yes, they're full of Jews, would you believe it? What do you mean you didn't know Saul Hudson, aka Slash from Guns N' Roses, or Steve Kudlow, aka Lips from Anvil, and Gene Simmons, who was formerly known as Chaim Witz from Kiss, were all Jews? Should that be metal from the shtetl, I wonder? The recent release of the documentary Anvil, the story of Anvil, exclamation mark, followed two Canadian Jewish 50-something heavy metalers as they tried to revive their career. I caught up with the film's director, Sasha Gervaisi, and its founder member, Steve Lips Kudlow and Rob Reiner. I'm watching your heavy metal uh, rocking out documentary and I'm thinking, these two boys, are, they're, they're rocking it, they're really living it. And then halfway through I'm thinking, are these Jewish boys? That was the original title of the film, was The Jews of Metal. That was the working title until we hit upon Anvil, the story of Anvil, because what was amazing about these guys was, here, here are these guys who are such a hugely influential metal band who influenced a whole generation of bands like Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax, Megadeth, and really they are just nice Jewish boys, and that was really all, always going to be part of the film. And I think, you know, most importantly for the Jewish audience, and I think a lot of J Jewish people and audiences who've seen the film have been astonished that here is this story of this friendship, and, and Rob Reiner, who's the drummer in the band, you know, his father actually survived Auschwitz. Mm. And I think that when the movie evolves into that part, you know, people are really, I think, quite overwhelmed because it's a very profoundly emotional story about a guy who survived a concentration camp, came to the West, and when his son said to him, listen, I want to be a heavy metal drummer, his father said, of course. <laughs> and not only that, not only did he encourage him, he paid for the, his drum kit and he let him go on tour. And it's like, it just, it's such a profound story about someone who'd endured, you know, obviously one of the most horrific experiences, you know, ever in the history of humankind, who's just wanted to encourage and love his son to do whatever he wanted to do. Do you think, uh, Steve, that, um, that your, your Jewishness comes through in the music or in the character that you, you, you've adopted as a, as a, as a metalist? I mean, it's not like it's it's unusual for 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 Jews to be involved in the entertainment business. It's just it, it's 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 part of the fabric of I think of what we're are made of to go after whatever you want to in any crazy way that you want to. Just go do it. I, I Stand out. Your brother is a is an accountant. Yeah, I, I noticed, and I mean, he was. And the other brother's a doctor. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Uh, you're you, you're a Jewish boy from London, yeah, Sasha. I'm from, from St John's Wood. I, I grew up in Abbey Road. I went to West London Synagogue. Was it attracting well, to you to bring that story out? Because I sense that these guys would not necessarily flaunt their Judaism, but I mean, you, you bring it out into the into the documentary. And when I was watching it, I was like, ah, yeah, ah, some well, Jews. I think there's, I something, there's, there's an inherent parallel between people who are fans of heavy metal and Jews, and that is. We, we are the underdog, we are the oppressed, we have been sort of held down and kept back and, and at times marginalised and, and reviled, you know, and heavy metal people too, you know, as a heavy metal fan you're immediately looked down upon, you're not cool, you know, and if you're a defiant heavy metal fan, everyone thinks you're kind of a bit of a loser. <laughs> and the truth is that I think there's that sort of 
not regarded with respect thing that that Jews can really relate to. So when you put these two things together, heavy metal and Judaism, you have this sort of very potent underdog yeah. cocktail. There's, there's enough. There's another. Me- it's all that underdog. There's the, the 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 old metal from the shtetl. But like you two guys with your long hair and you you got the little beardy bits. You're wearing black. I mean, you're one step away from kind of the Lubavitch. <laughs> Yeah. And you go around converting people, trying to make them That's into... That's right. Yeah. My God, now that you point this yeah, out, it's no, like, point that out. It's like he's got his metal to fill in wrapped around his arm, right? That's quite unbelievable. That's he does look like a metal rabbi. Here is the world's leading scholarly authority on the topic of Jews and heavy metal. Dr Keith Kahn-Harris, rock on, to explain what makes a nice Jewish boy don tight leathers and turn the volume up to 11, or to you, 12. Well, I'm not sure that Jews have been attracted to metal any more than any other minority, but it's certainly true that some of the biggest names in metal are Jewish. The most famous, of course, being Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley from KISS. Gene Simmons was born Chaim Witz. He was born in Israel in Haifa. Uh, There's Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister, Scott Ian of Anthrax, Slash of Guns N' Roses is half Jewish. And also perhaps more significantly in the metal underground there are loads of Jewish musicians, most of whom that people won't have heard of unless they're metal fans. I think that metal has an irresistible attraction to people who feel a bit of an outsider, people who feel perhaps a bit nerdy and perhaps a bit picked on when they're teenagers. And metal is outsider music, and it's a great way for people, particularly, it has to be said, men, to feel a bit more in control and to say sod off to the people who bullied you at high school. The thing about Jews is that In the diaspora, Jews have often been associated with weakness, with nerdiness, with being a kind of feminized masculinity, and plenty of Jewish cultural historians have written about that. Metal is a very over-the-top kind of music. It's got a very over-the-top, hyper-masculine kind of image. And that kind of image both um, satirizes hyper-masculinity, but it also takes on many of the codes of it. So it's a way of simultaneously parodying the sort of masculinity from which Jews have traditionally been excluded, but also taking it on. I always thought when uh, when you go to shul and the, the dovening takes on a furious kind of thing, that's like headbanging, isn't Absolutely. it? When they up and down and up and down. Oi, I'm frightened of those Power people. Power shockling. Power shockling. Uh, Hagai, are you, are you a metalist? I was in my youth. Really? I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I should admit this on air. but yes, should. Yes, I, 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 I even listened to the aforementioned anthrax on one or two occasions. <gasps> but um, And I have to say, I've become rather a fan in the last few years of, uh, of uh, Tenacious D with Jack Black's, <laughs> again, to, with the Jewish connection, which is a wonderfully, um, actually very good rock, but also with a wonderful vein did, of humour. Where do you do your metal listening? Uh, with friends and at home, but again, it was it was as reflected in the piece in the bedroom. It, it was a very standard kind of uh, reaction against um, uh, the the norms, the accepted ideas. But again, it, within a sense of uh, something that wasn't too out there. Danielle, I, I've got a feeling you weren't a metalist. No, my taste actually run more to nineteen seventies reggae. But I think there is something not so masculine about uh, these Jewish heavy metalists, but terribly, terribly camp. Mm, All that makeup and glitter, you know. 
it makes me think perhaps they were spending their childhood dressing up in their mum's clothes. Oh, absolutely. And... I mean, they grew up in with you know shoulder pads and big hair as de rigueur. It's exactly. just your mum was doing it rather than your mate. You did, did when you were doing it. Were you aware of of it as a, as a sort of rebellion, as a snarl, as your mother telling you turn that music off? Yeah, I mean, what what more can a Jewish boy do to offend his mother than say I'm I'm going to an Anthrax concert at the Brixton Academy? <laughs> All of those it's, it's just the defi- There you go. It's the, it, that's it. You don't actually need to go. You do not even necessarily want to go. But the, the, the mere expression of it is, is a rebellious enough statement. Well, they have Christmas when everyone gets on everyone else's nerves. We have the festival of Passover, or Pesach, and specifically Seder night with its set-piece dinner and the chance to have our own dysfunctional family blowouts. So, how to avoid tears over the chicken soup? How can you stop yourself wanting to strangle your brother-in-law over the crane? We asked legendary agony aunt Irma Kurtz for some tips. Everyone is going to be playing the roles they played in childhood. When a family meets, that's what happens. When they meet for a big event like a Seder, everyone reverts. Somebody has to be a grown-up. Now, even mummy and daddy revert to the way they treated you when you were children. I'm afraid that it's up to you to be the grown-up. You must remember that Passover represents liberation from slavery. So please do not be enslaved by the old role. Don't allow it to happen. And don't expect anyone else to have grown up in the interim since the last Pesach. It's all yours. If you're thinking about serving grape juice instead of wine, remember that wine is the beverage of celebration. And this is a great celebration. If you keep tabs on the drink limit... Do it very, very discreetly. And then just very sweetly say, perhaps you'd like some grape juice now. Uh, when they've come to their limit of the, of the four glasses, of the number of glasses of wine. Otherwise, leave it to them. When you help in the kitchen, your mother or any relative, remember that it's her court, not yours. So you take orders even when you disagree. You do not know a better way to chop the greens. You don't. Forget it. Okay? That will keep things much calmer. And remember that she's pretty tense too. Choose an ally. There's someone around the table. These may be people you haven't seen for a long, long time. And there's someone you really used to get on with well. Concentrate on an ally. Smile at her, reminisce with her or him. Do it, because having an ally is, is making you stronger and making you less likely to explode if somebody hits the wrong buttons and less likely to be hurt if someone hits the wrong buttons. You need someone you can exchange a wink with. And that can be someone you may not see again for another year till, till the next Pesach. <laughs> If an argument erupts at table, if, if the argument is between others and you're an audience to it, if you can, 
the Jewish sense of humor isn't there for no reason, you know. It's probably there to help us through uh, bad situations. Please, when possible, a good joke, a joke that makes everyone laugh. And sometimes, if you're feeling tense, you can be inspired. Stay light. Don't take sides. Stay out of it. If you're going to be a peacemaker, do it with a sense of justice, a sense of balance, and a sense of humor. Legendary agony aunt Irma Kurtz. On my place, I will have my children's Haggadah from 1973 oh. in front of me with a pop-up book with the, with the little Moses in the bulrushes. What, what goes along? And you pull the thing, the flamingo's head oh. comes up. Every year she gives it to me. <laughs> Mum, I'm 40 years old. Do I need this in front of me? Yes, you do need it. And do you know what? I do need you it because the only one yeah. I understand. Isn't the best bit of the whole Haggadah the fact that every single person around the table's got a different Haggadah, can't find where they are, their bit isn't in it, and you actually just argue for about four hours as to oh. where on earth you are and what on earth you're supposed to be doing See and so one person mumbles and everyone page turns but no one has the same the, the problem is with it is that no one because it's called Seder and for those who don't that, that means order <laughs> uh, and the, the actual thing is it, it's chaos I don't know what the, the, the Hebrew word for chaos is but it should be that because we have a, a variety a balagan. Of, balagan, yeah. uh, there you go oh, you see you know Ooh. you see um, but we don't have the, no one has the same prayer book I've got my children's Haggadah my dad's got another one my, uh, my grandfather's got one that he nicked from the shul years ago we've got some red ones over there that no one can read anymore <laughs> and then my cousin's got his kind of progressive I went to JFS book here it is it's all in English and no one's reading from the same page in this so a no metaphor wonder. for the Jewish people as a whole and that is all we have time for in this month's Sounds Jewish. Thanks to my studio guest, to Haggai Segal. Thank you very much. Lovely Honor to and see you. Uh, and to Daniela Pellet as ever. Pleasure to have you. It was lovely. Uh, and to our sponsors, of course, the Jewish Community Centre for London. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer on Sounds Jewish, Sarah Peters, we wish you a constipation-free pacer. <laughs> Goodbye. Shalom, shalom. <laughs>